0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anul Polat. We have a guest on today's episode that I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Uh, he is the author of his website, Rapid Travel Chai. He also has a Facebook group called Every Passport Stamp. But what's even more interesting than that is my guest today, Stefan Krasowski, has Every Passport Stamp. He has traveled to every country in the world he has some fascinating stories from all of his travels and we also talk about some of the frequent flyer miles he used and some of the tricks that you can use on your next flight or when you're planning out your next trip and we also talk about his last two countries that he visited recently which are yemen and syria and his time there what it was like and uh, that part of the podcast there's just the stories that we talk about that he tells are really inspiring and and, and and touching. So I think you're going to enjoy it very much. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much uh, in this introduction. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast with Stefan Krasowski, and we are good to go. The, the reason that I hit record very early now is in the past, I'll start sort of chatting with a guest before I hit mm-hmm. record, and then I find we get into a great conversation. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Let's go back. And then the second time, it takes some time to sort of get back into the flow. So sure, yeah. Um, thank you for uh, for being on the podcast. Uh, I I appreciate it. I have a lot to talk to you about, um, but I think it's best if you introduce yourself first, uh, and then we can go a little bit from there.
1: Absolutely. I grew up in Minnesota, in the United States, and. Uh, admired my big brother. He was studying Chinese in high school. So I studied Chinese and that got me going on travel. And I I lived in China for a decade. I'm back in the U.S. now. And travel addiction uh, led to visiting every country in the world, which I was able to complete last year, visiting both Yemen and Syria after a a two-year pause due to the, the tragic circumstances in those countries.
0: Wow. So I guess I'll start with China because um, not a lot of people that I know have have spent that much time in China. So um, I guess any insights from spending, you know, a decade, I assume that you speak the language uh, and that that you've learned a lot of things about uh, China in that time. Uh, Anything that maybe a casual visitor wouldn't notice or know?
1: Yeah, there, there's certainly so much, and the the cliche amongst the foreign reporters is that if if you spend a week in China, you can write a book, and if you spend a year, you you don't get past the first page. And I think that's that's true for many expats. And it's a, a broad lesson I've found is that wherever you may be living outside of your home country, when it gets around the second year, that's when you really have to start solving things locally, you don't just have the crutch of all your bank accounts at home necessarily working or you know, people receiving mail for you. You really have to start getting local IDs, local this and that, and and so I think if people and a lot of times we'll talk about that year abroad. If 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 they're thinking about living somewhere overseas, I'd encourage them to consider if it's possible something like a two-year stay somewhere, where really uh, having to become part of a place you you do in uh, certainly increase the amount of depth of understanding. And I'm I mean my blog is rapid travel Chai, so I I'm very guilty of of very fast travels in many cases, but but having that sustained experience is something that i think is is wonderful for anybody to gain Uh, in terms of china i think uh and tying it to tourism, it was one of the expat magazines once I was reading of how when, when different countries were opening up their visas to China and India had just opened up more easily for different tour groups to visit. And one of the guides summed up was that the Chinese could visit the Taj Mahal, but if they had a bad lunch, they'd say it was a terrible day. And and so that appreciation of food and the centrality to Uh, culture of food. I mean, in every respect, food so dominates how people socialize, how they think about things, how they experience. Uh, Another comment from a friend was, you know, in when you're around Chinese, they wake up in the morning, it's not what are we going to have for breakfast, it's what are we going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And really, uh, the, the centrality of that was was something that I'd always treated food as incidental and, and that appreciation and the regional cuisines became uh, something that, that I got fascinated in and, and appreciated over time.
0: Yeah, I noticed when I was in China, and I, I was only there for a few weeks, the diversity of the cuisine, I mean, it's it, it's not only the dishes, but just even the parts of the animals. That they, I mean, just so much diversity, and I feel like I, I, I only saw the tiniest bit of of what was possible. And I feel like it's a very underappreciated cuisine. I think everybody thinks Chinese cuisine, you know, outside of China, but it's totally different in, in China.
1: Yeah, and certainly the, the the ways that that vegetables play play a role, and and I'm uh, um, just even where I live in Seattle. I mean, we have huge supermarkets, Safeway, all of these, and it's like 30 kinds of lettuce for a boring salad, and kale and cabbage, and then we go to the Asian markets that are down the street, and there's so many different kinds of greens and 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 uh, all kinds of vegetables that, that you can experiment with, and and so that. That idea that that a vegetable is not something just tucked on the corner of a plate, uh, very separate from uh, the rest of the dish. And I feel of world cuisines. I mean, there's 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 so much great food all over the world, but certain ones, uh, China, uh, India, Mexico, these these large civilization ones, where they integrate so many ingredients, uh, the, the range of foods into into more um, I'd say more systematic or or uh, comprehensive holes rather than than a lot of the, what I grew up with which was you know there's meat on one corner of your plate and there's maybe a starch on this corner and and a little green thing falling <laughs> off the end of that side and they're not they're not assembled into this uh, this this harmonious presentation and it I mean even it's it's been disrupted because of uh uh you know the current pandemic but my mother-in-law in Shanghai we a year and a half ago, two years ago, got her set up as a little retirement project uh, teaching on on Airbnb um, experiences, teaching uh, visitors, uh, both Chinese and from around the country as well as uh, foreign visitors, how to make uh, Shanghainese food because it's one that there's not a huge tradition of Shanghainese going around the world, setting up restaurants. So if a restaurant in, you know XYZ global city says it's Shanghainese there's there's probably nothing very Shanghainese on the menu with with a few noted exceptions uh, uh, you know, but the food itself like like each of these regions is uh, is incredible the writings of fuchsia Dunlop are, are wonderful uh, for people that that have an interest in the regional
0: cuisines and Ed, as a foreigner how easy or difficult is it to integrate in I guess when I say China, I'm not sure which city it was. I suppose it can vary a lot. You know, we're just saying China. But, uh, you know, how easy, easy is it to integrate? Uh, how do people treat you? Uh, what was that experience uh, like? Pe-
1: people are, are extremely respectful of, of foreigners. And it there are some very pronounced stereotypes and views that would make, uh, you know, People very uncomfortable, and when if directly translated, it, uh, say, say into English, and that uh, th- there's a lot more casualness about blurting out stereotypes and that. So the one different ones about race and religion, those come up, and and so uh, you know the the foreigner's experience is is going to be. Uh, you know, impacted by that as well as are you in a very global city a Shanghai we're walking down the street no one's gonna blink that you're a foreigner and if you go somewhere very rural uh, you're going to get a, a tremendous amount of attention uh, and, and a lot of curiosity um, the one of the greatest things I think about it is is you I don't know that there's a culture in the world that can rival China for people being so impressed and enthusiastic for any foreigner attempting to learn their language and so if you go there as a language student you will have no shortage you can just go to a park in the morning and I've done that with people that say classmates or friends that were new arrivals and were nervous to speak just put them in a park in the morning even in a big city and within seconds there'll be people wanting to discuss, ask questions about news, about sports, practice language and, and there's, there's such a, a patient and an enthusiasm for anyone even just at the very beginning and so certainly in my home country I get embarrassed when people are are very impatient if, if someone has a bit of an accent that they can't understand or, or clearly you know learning English and uh, in China it is one that it's challenging to to learn the language and it's it's challenging for Chinese too that you have what are called dialects, but but effectively separate languages. It's more of a political construct to say they're all one language. Written uh, essentially uh, follows the same the same written language across the country, because uh, uh, they don't bring the local uh, dialects or topolex in as much. But um, you know, a lot of, when I was studying in Shanghai, when I first started there, I mean, a lot of the students from around China were trying so hard to learn Shanghainese because if they sounded like they weren't Shanghainese, they would get higher prices at the market, and they would get comments from the locals. I and mean, it's it's a complex thing, uh, uh, but but again, so so rewarding on the language side. On the the living side, it's it's been interesting that in the past couple of years, technology, in a sense, has made it harder to <laughs> to uh, to get up and running in that. Um, uh, say just just even a few years ago you could walk up to a train station and as long as you had some kind of ID or even before that no ID you could just get up get a ticket and walk on walk onto a train now uh, many train ticket uh, ticket offices are gone now everything's digital you need a WeChat account which needs a local bank account which needs an ID and, and uh, just this year like Alipay had just started setting up a very limited tour pass that would allow foreigners uh, with, with foreign uh, bank cards, credit cards to do a very limited top up to Alipay just so they could get on public transport and these things. So the, uh, I've seen a little bit of that in Europe where it's like you, you arrive in a European country and the airport train has no way to buy a ticket, you know, for a foreigner because they only take the local debit card and there's no, no person to sell you a ticket. So some of that's gotten challenging. The visa, uh, rules are certainly much much more strongly enforced now in terms of people that would would say want to teach English and just keep coming in and out on tourist visas. Those kind of things have been much more regularized. So people looking for a longer stay really need to make sure they're going in in a very official and legal way with sponsorship, say say by an employer, uh, to be able to do that. So it's not the ideal long-term digital nomad one there are some hurdles to to getting up and running
0: yeah and it it'll be interesting to see now after the pandemic how travel resumes in china specifically because i think of any country in, in the world that has i mean we hear a lot about europe and and what's happening in the us but i think when things start to start rolling again I, i'd be curious to see how international travel in China restarts, you know, whether it's a strong restart or kind of a weak restart. I'll be curious. I I don't know if you have any thoughts, but
1: yeah, there've been some very limited programs with, uh, Um, Say, with Singapore, a a so-called express visa for specific business purposes, that's anything but express. It's incredibly onerous and limited to Singaporeans. Uh, Just in the past few weeks, they've started letting uh, people, say, from uh, I think most European countries that already had residence permits in China, they weren't being allowed back in. Finally, they're letting those people. So they've been away from their their homes in China for for months and not able to get in. It's been an ex- extremely strict regime uh, within China. People, foreigners that have been in China throughout it, they've not had disruption other than than what everybody else has experienced. and And the domestic tourism is coming back. Different airlines have had these these all you can fly promos they're they're heavily restricted it's like you know that you can only take the first flight you know 5 a.m on a saturday morning yeah (laughs) actually they don't they don't usually do flights that early (laughs) and about 7 a.m is the start but but you get the idea i mean they're they're pushing the domestic travel uh right now and uh, for much of much of asia i mean we've just the past couple of weeks, we saw the restrictions Thailand's going to be putting in. It's uh, of, of broadly regions in the world that are being very cautious and restrictive of opening up. A lot of uh, the Asian countries are are being ones that uh, are being very limited. I think Central Asia, if you're talking about uh, uh, the some of the stay-on countries, they're some of the first that are starting to uh, be more accessible.
0: Yeah, and it- in the episode before this that I recorded with uh, Nora Dunn, um, I don't know if you've interviewed her on your video series, which we'll we'll get to, but uh, mm-hmm. we talked about sort of whether or not the, the death of digital nomadism, is digital nomadism dying? And as somebody who's been to every country in the world, you know, this pandemic has put a break on everybody's travel. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't, I basically don't make travel plans at this point because... Who knows, right? So um, I wonder what you think. I mean, do you think we're going to come out of this and it's going to be better for people to move around the world or it's going to be more restrictive? You know, we're going to see maybe vaccine passports, which, you know, they do have in various parts of the world for other diseases. But uh, my take is I feel that the road back to where it was before where we could just go anywhere we want really you know, visas aside, I don't think we're going to get back to that. And we kind of discussed that, you know, I feel that travel is going to be more restrictive, at least over the next couple of years, um, vaccine or not. I, I think countries are not going to be as thrilled. Aside, The only thing that's keeping tourism alive at this point, I think, is economic incentive, you know, so... Um, I think it's a tight balancing game. But what do you think? I mean, if, if let's say you had 10 more countries to go, how would you be planning it at this point?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't be planning <laughs> it. Uh, it uh, In a sense, I have a, a luxury in the sense that I was trying to take a little bit of a break. I didn't expect as much of a break this year. Uh, but I mentioned in the intro, I mean, circumstances weren't right. So I had two countries left that was over two years of waiting and trying and I had to keep perspective. I mean, my my selfish journey was you know, of no importance in the grand scheme compared to what was happening in, in Syria and Yemen. And And uh, my view was that when it would be time that I could productively visit th- those countries and and contribute as a tourist to the economy in a, in a useful way is when I would visit and I wouldn't say, take some tiki tack thing, say I'm in Golan Heights and claiming that Syria or something, I mean, that wouldn't be a visit in any substantive sense. And, and you know, so I've reflected on on that two-year part where I was just very frustrated and I felt like, what can I do? I don't want to plan something that is available to me because I've got this goal and whenever it comes up, I want to jump at it. And, and that limbo, I, I experienced a bit of that frustration. Again, it's a very privileged and, and selfish one in many senses, but it, it's very real as well. And, and so in this, I mean, I, I feel the frustration. I, I, I agree broadly with, with your comments about them. I mean, the tourism industry is a giant industry, but it's very decentralized. I mean, the the airlines are, are very centralized, in, in a sense, and international pride, but broadly, the tourist industry is so diffuse that the political lobby is is very weak in many countries, unless it totally dominates the economy. And so you've got uh, a lot of cases for economic opening up that, that are strong, where you've got very concentrated industries that that dominate political discussion, and tourism, I think, gets fallen to the wayside. And so political leaders have this, this terrible choice to make of, you know, do I open something up and open myself up to risk and blame if if something goes wrong? And you know, all we know about the nature of this is that things unexpected will happen and people will get sick and people will die and it's it's a difficult trade-off. And so the, the default of being very cautious you know, works for most politicians most of the time until some other pressure overwhelms them. And that that pressure's economic and and we'll see countries competing for uh, tourism and making the economic choice over what perhaps they might be thinking about about the health choice and, and so it'll be it'll be um you know, a bit like we've talked about global trade models. Does everything get unified in a WTO like structure or does everything get bilateral? And clearly we're seeing a lot more bilateral special arrangements and, and that's gonna be the nature of uh I think travel certainly for the next few years. These these multi I mean West Africa has had this this multi-country visa regime. Once you're you have to be in one of the countries, but once you're in, you can apply for it and get several countries that are otherwise fairly complicated visas for a lot of nationalities. I mean this kind of thing I can see being revisited by by a lot of countries and, and tightening up just you know for their own political cover.
0: Yeah and it seems like we were getting to a point really in late 2019 where a lot of countries that weren't really accessible or were difficult visas to get We're kind of opening up i mean saudi arabia comes to mind and a few others um and i think now that there's sort of this obviously this sort of backtrack although i did see i did see on the facebook group actually that um someone posted that saudi arabia is i think gonna start accepting tourists again in early next year um but when it comes to visas you probably i mean you're an expert on visas i'm I'm sure. But when, when did the every country goal start? So when did that start? And did you have to, you know, what were your sort of personal rules as to what was a co- constituted a visit and, you know, whether you went back to another country and so on?
1: Of course, I have a Facebook group that one of the key rules is we don't discuss what counts as a visit because it, it leads to endless uh, <laughs> arguments and debates. But it but but uh, but it's fun to hear everybody's take actually when it's done and and uh, the the various formulations and you know, people argue about you have to spend a night. Well, when you're sleeping, what does that actually count? And you know, is it better to spend you know you know if you're going to spend 12 hours of data? You know, it, it just goes back and forth. And I know one and a New Zealand traveler who is like studying Google maps to find that there's some guest house that technically seems to be it's outside the Vatican walls, but it technically seems to be on Vatican territory. So that would count for her rule is is spending a night. Uh, Broadly. My, my approach has been that, uh, Uh, I I visit a country in a way that I feel I don't have to go back. I I may very much want to go back, uh, but it's, it's very fluid. I mean, at at a minimum, I'm, I, I don't, I don't count airports or transits for that. Uh, but, but it's, it's vastly different. Uh, some of the, the final countries on my list, San Marino and Italy, I did not spend the night. I spent the day and hiked all over and, and it was the middle of winter and I nearly crashed the car on the icy roads multiple times. So I feel like, yeah, I got a pretty good <laughs> experience and it was an enjoyable place. It was one that was a revelation to me. I knew nothing about it going in and, and I would go back and, and spend some time. I enjoyed it. Uh, one that that i could have uh cheated on in a sense and is very near and dear to you is turkey where i'd been through Istanbul airport so many times and of of airports that and this is the old one but uh, of airports that represent national cultures. I mean, <laughs> Istanbul is up there. I've just, just I mean, the incredible, I love those, the hyperspeed uh, little standing wheelchair carts for, for getting people at like 50 miles an hour through the airport, the the selection of like 50 free newspapers of all the different local newspapers. I mean, there's just so much to experience and love the, con- the little uh, conveyor system for the security trays. I mean, it, it's an incredible, Place, but I I've been there many times, and I could never say, "Oh, that's Turkey." And you know, even spending a night in an airport hotel. So, for that, it wasn't until I took a two-week road trip from Van in the east uh, along the, the south route, so through the Kurdish territories, through the Aegean coast, all the way up Gallipoli. I mean, it's this huge sweep. I haven't been through the northern half of the country, but that was the only time when I felt like oh, I could say I've I visited Turkey because of my travel interests and priorities and. You know, impact on world civilization. All of this. I mean, Turkey stands out so much that that I just wouldn't have. I wouldn't have counted a day in Istanbul.
0: Yeah, and the funny thing is, so I have sort of a loose goal to visit every country, although mm-hmm. you know, mine is not very organized. A lot of people ask me how many countries are there in the world, so I'm going to ask you because, <laughs> as you know, there are different definitions as to how many countries there are in the world. What's you know. Is there an, a list that you go by? Official list. The basis
1: for every list is the United Nations 193, and that's one that everyone will accept as a starting point. And then from there, the the arguments go on. And and uh, you know, very serious of people that see themselves proudly as collectors will you uh, know say, "Can I show you my list?" And are they taking the the Olympic member states? Are they taking the? Uh, um, you know, the, uh, the international standards organization list, are they taking this and that, are they, you know, it, it goes on and on and what what I have enjoyed, and there's a number of lists out there, I'm on the board of directors of a uh, an organization called Traveler Century Club that's been around for decades. There's also Most Traveled People, there's also Nomad Mania, all have different lists and approaches. Uh, most Traveled People takes the ham radio sites around the world and, and if you look at these, you start uh, seeing how unusual so much of the world is geopolitically. And there's these quirky places that don't make the news uh, that, that are very, you know, off the mainstream to to the general, but of course they're very relevant to the people who live there. And, and they've been some of the most fascinating places I've, I've visited. I mean, you know, the idea that, that in, in South America, you've got French Guiana, which is, it's technically part of France itself. It's not an overseas territory, it's a domestic flight from Paris. And it's sitting on the end of South America and it's a French speaking territory and it's got the European Union uh, space launch system and it, it goes on and you just start seeing these 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 places and, and, and the world is so much more fascinating as I've I've looked at these lists, even if I don't travel to all of them of of visiting these these quirky and different places and, and you know just figuring out how how do they exist. I mean taking Europe, I mean people think they have an idea of Europe, but look up Kaliningrad and, and look at the history from World War Two and how is there this chunk of Russia where it is <laughs> and how does that work? It, it's a fascinating history and it's it's also central to German history and culture and and uh, you know if I wasn't looking at some of these lists, I, I, uh, you know, might, might've totally overlooked it or not, not gone to the effort. Uh, so that's, I think that's the most positive spin. I mean, some people call this competitive travel and they develop point systems and this counts as this. And I, I think that's a bit over the top and others take it up for commercial marketing interests. I mean, I'm, I'm a white American male. I mean, I can, I, I could create something, you know, like the first uh, Minnesotan with a Polish last name that, that whistled Yankee Doodle while riding a unicycle across each country. But, you know, it'd be, it, it just wouldn't be meaningful to me. And it, I'm also not 19, so I, I, it was easy for me to go at my own pace and, and out of my own interest. And, and really, it was just you know, looking at a map and getting inspired of saying, you know, I really want to see, see as much of it as I can and uh, getting getting addicted. And there's always a collector story back in somebody's childhood if they really want to see them all because uh, no matter what your interests, it's it starts getting harder and expensive for ones that you probably don't have your own personal interests as you get like in the 140s, 150s. And, and so then it's, it's yeah. really got to be that determination.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, for me personally, I like having – the goal so i just like having some boundary around it and that kind of maybe pushes me well it pushes me to go to places that i wouldn't have visited on my own um so i like having that constraint i think i think you know a lot of people do look at it as maybe it's competitive or you're just checking things off a list but it's kind of nice to have a list to sort of define whatever that goal is you know it's rather than keeping it open-ended I want to travel the world and you know then
1: it's it, it's it's the easiest uh, thing for travel planning I have I've never had an issue with deciding where to go because I'm trying to go <laughs> everywhere and so I, you know if, if the opportunity comes to go to this place I mean they're all on the list so it's uh, it, it's just figuring figuring it out and uh, yeah I think that that structure and and being systematic uh, whether it's a region whether it's within a country I mean my earliest travels were was going to every province in China as a student and one semester I was in Hong Kong and just they arranged classes Monday to Wednesday and Wednesday night I would this was before a lot of the internet stuff so I would just take the train up to Shenzhen from from school get on whatever long distance bus or train was long enough to sleep the night and be back Monday morning smelling of of secondhand smoke and (laughs) and all of that of the experience at the time and it you it was an incredible one, and it it because I wasn't saying this is the only trip I'm taking. I could just get on a bus to go go anywhere and start you know, you know adding dots to the
0: map. So where where did you know where do you think that comes from? I mean, where, when you were growing up, did you travel a lot, or you know, did you have? Yeah, you know, relative who traveled a lot. You know, anything that you think of, or yeah, not not at all. It, uh,
1: one trip to Disney World when I was four, and then grandparents visit in New York. But otherwise, my parents workaholics. They they focused on putting my brother and I the best education that they could possibly do. So it was, it was. You know, I, I would be jealous on spring break when kids would come back suntanned from the skis, or or uh, <laughs> saying they'd been to Disney too many times, and so maybe there was a little bit of. Pent up demand, uh, but it was—I I, suppose—my uh, junior year of high school. As I said, I was studying Chinese, and we had exchange programs, sister schools. So we take a trip junior year, and and that was—I mean—that was, I mean, was just—it was eye-opening in so many respects. The the seeing Shanghai where they were building up Pudong, the the, the huge area of skyscraping, mean, just the the level of scale of of development and the buzz, and that's. What really hooked me was this incredible sense of energy. And we discussed earlier: is it easy to live in China as an expat? I mean, it's it's not easy for anyone. It's it's such a high energy, such a high stress country. I mean, people always seem energized and tired because it is. It's a competitive place. I mean, it it uh, people are jostling, pushing. It's it's you know, big population, big economic growth, and being around that is, is so different than. Uh, Say in the U.S. I mean things are changing fast right now, but generally you could say, "Oh, I had this, I ate at this restaurant three years ago, and there's a chance it's still there, or the store." And and you know, if, you, if you tried to do that in China, I'd say, "Well, that city block isn't there anymore because they've just re," <laughs> and it was something they built two years ago, and they rebuilt it. So it was that that buzz and excitement, and and so I found that when I arrive in a new place, when I hit customs at the airport or get off the bus or the boat or something. It, it just excites me and energizes me to, to have that, dive into that new experience, which can be frustrating, challenging, but that's, that's the one thing that I just get this rush out of and that, that's why I've kept going.
0: And was China technically country number one or wh- where did the journey uh, begin? Mm.
1: Technically, it was uh, some family friends took me on a fishing trip to uh, Manitoba <laughs> across the border. <laughs> so in, in Canada, it did get dramatic. There were massive forest fires and we all had to evacuate. So even even uh, <laughs> Canada, I guess, would be uh, uh, would be that. So it was Canada, yeah, and then China. And uh, yeah, and then from there, it just uh, it got built. And for a few years, it really was just China. I was studying there, working there, um, you know, very limited student budget interning, so there wasn't money to go around but then uh, you know then adding a bit of southeast asia and then you know you know mongolia and central central asia is, i mean what what an incredible region of of uh, people that have traveled a lot of the world you'll hear central asia so uh, you know the silk road sites are famous in uzbekistan and such but really all five of the former ex soviet stands and then safety considerations, you know, discouraged some from Afghanistan, but then Pakistan as well. I mean, any country ending in Stan is really, uh, I think, an incredible experience for so many travelers. And so, you know, this step-by-step branching out, finding jobs that position me in different places, uh, you know, have, have different travel, uh, has, has been a part of... Uh, a part of um, uh, one job I had when they were cost cutting, it was like we need you to get from. I was back in the U.S. at this point. We need you to get back from I mean, from New York to uh, meet clients at a conference in Cape Town, but they've restructuring cut the budgets you're gonna to have to fly economy and i said okay if uh, if i can fly the way i want to and so it took me six days to get there but i spent two days in angola two days in mozambique two days in malawi uh, all all looped into the same ticket for like 1600 bucks and, and uh, was able to get the angola visa that way which at the time was very difficult now it's one that's, that's gotten easier. Uh, as a transit where they said uh, why do you need to transit if you're coming from Johannesburg and going back to Johannesburg <laughs> and, and I paused and I, I just said uh, I, I hear you have a beautiful country and uh, <laughs> a few days later they called me back and said okay we're giving it to you uh, but um, yeah it, it's uh, just that that that's been I mean you can you can hear my happiness coming out of just doing these and, and, and experiencing these things has been so much that I've enjoyed about this. This journey
0: yeah it's funny you know a lot of times you know i get to passport control in a new place They say, why are you here why are you visiting and i was like well i just really want to see it and they look at me like I, they kind of sometimes it's like what really i mean what's yeah. why do you really want to be here like i really want to see it but mm-hmm. so it's kind of funny when when you get that reaction and then you're that's, like
1: that's true i mean how many countries were they, they they're like why on earth would you want to visit <laughs> us and that but that's probably the best experiences you've had i'm sure is because then you're you're so often pulled into meeting people that people are just shocked. Why is he here? You know, Why is she here? And, and uh, you know, you get the most, that's when you get invited to somebody's home and, and all these, these travelers uh, dream experiences.
0: Yeah. So many, because of the country goal, I guess for me, so many of the countries that I wouldn't have visited or that I really didn't want to visit, it just happened to be on the, on the, on the route, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I end up there they ended up being some of my favorite countries. It's like, mm-hmm. You never can tell and then, you know, sometimes you go somewhere and you're really excited to see it and it's a little bit of a letdown maybe or, you know, it, it, I haven't found the formula as to what will make it great or not. I think the unexpected, having unexpected mm. events that are mostly positive, I think is probably the what I feel like sort of triggers me that I'm like, Okay, I really like this place because I I was wrong about it or I had no idea what it was like. Um, so your trip was sort of open-ended, right? So it, it wasn't you know I have two years to do this. It's just
1: yeah, I no I really thought it would be through by professional retirement. And um, about a decade ago, when I moved back to the U.S., I started learning about the frequent flyer programs, which which is a a whole separate a very deep area and i i, I blog about it i, I speak at conferences uh, around the world on it it's it, it's a subject that some travelers really shun and others uh, adopt it and and love it uh, but what what it allowed me to do was um accelerate a lot of my travels and just in terms of financial affordability so as as a very uh, uh you know, basic example, I mean, if people are familiar with the airline alliances like Star Alliance, for an example. So Turkish uh, has a great program. United has a good program as well. And, and these miles can be used on Ethiopian Airlines, uh, their partners, Brussels Airlines. And so when I want to go from Liberia to Sierra Leone, that's a, a somewhat perilous and very long and, and not necessarily cheap border crossing to go over land because not many people are doing it. It's it's not like there's just the regular scheduled bus and you and you do that. And and the flights can be cheaper from either of those countries to get to Europe than to go to the neighbor country. You know, so that's like a six hundred dollar flight I think at the time. But uh, with the airline programs they're looking at it, oh, it's just within West Africa, so it's going to be 7,500 miles or 12,500 miles, so the, the equivalent of like $75, $125, you know, roughly speaking, and so suddenly trips and, and destinations, places in the Indian Ocean, different ones that financially were just out of reach with being able to strategically use miles, I've been able to visit them much much sooner than, than I ever
0: expected. And, and what what do you think is the biggest mistake people make with frequent flyer miles? Um, I have a couple of thoughts, but I, I'd like to hear yours first, actually, see if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> uh, not putting
1: the time into figuring out how to use them is, is the biggest thing. And um, qu- hi, hi, cl- close on the tails of that is thinking everything is online. And so... I think actually younger travelers struggle more than some of the older ones because they don't see things online. Uh, an example the airlines, many of the functionality for booking award flights, especially partner airlines is typically not online. It's It's been increasing. And, and one of the big, uh, some of my friends at a blog called frequent miler, they discovered what uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and it had been overlooked essentially by every American traveler was the Turkish uh, program. You know, what does this have to do with getting to Hawaii? Well, it turns out from the US 48 to Hawaii, their award chart allows 7,500 miles one way to Hawaii and 12,500 in business, and these can be lie flat business seats on United that United's own program is charging 40, 50,000 miles for. Uh, how do you get Turkish miles? If you have a Citibank credit card around the world, uh, many markets uh, allow you to transfer your city points to Turkish, including U.S. And so a lot of us were sitting on these miles and suddenly had a really cheap way to get <laughs> to, to get all the way to Hawaii. And and this stuff, it's it's not what the what the programs incentivize. The programs want you to just use it for flights on their own airline and you know, low-value redemptions for the toaster and that. So if you if you do invest the time, you figure out the airline partners. Oh, Air France, you know it partners with Air Mauritius, even though they're not a SkyTeam airline. These things get complicated, but if you have very specific goals, it's international business class or first-class flights, it's uh, getting to destinations like mine where the cash tickets are expensive. Uh, you, you can figure it out, but you have to be willing to put some research, you know, approach it like you're taking out a loan at a bank, you know, figure out the ins and outs. And and a lot of people just say, oh, they're just points. You know, I'm not going to bother with it. It's too complicated. And they, you know, they redeem them for an Amazon gift card. But I'm curious your your take.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're sort of on the same page. I think your answer was better. I, I think but the the two things I would say is one, not using them at all. So, oh, I only fly, you know, once every year or I don't know if I'll fly next year. The people who are already at that point where they're thinking about using miles probably fly enough to where it makes sense to collect them, you know, to where they won't expire. And now a lot of them don't expire. And the second thing is not using the the alliances. So mm-hmm. you want to get an airline where you can funnel as many points from as many different airlines into one place. So that way you can use them mm-hmm. on different airlines, like you said. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that you can use, let's say, Turkish Airlines miles on United or you know, United miles on Lufthansa, so they don't know that. And I think the airlines don't really want you to know that too much, you know? A lot of
1: times the airlines, the agreements they have amongst each other result in much cheaper pricing for some awards on their partners than using their own their own award like emirates is one where if you're redeeming it's like use emirates miles for anything but flights on emirates because they have some good partnerships like japan airlines that people don't think about. But if you're just going on the website, you see Emirates flights and it says like a million miles, you know, to go from from yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, d- Dubai to Muscat. You're like, what, what's going on? And, and yeah, they don't have an incentive to to teach you how to do that. And, uh, uh, but the, the, the payoffs can be huge if you if you do figure it out.
0: Yeah, yeah and I, I think you brought up a good point too, that calling makes a huge difference. Every time I've called the airline to use mile points, mm-hmm. It makes a huge, they always find some flight that I didn't see on the online calendar. They always find something that's way better than anything I would have found on my own. So it's always just good to call, even though, yeah, calling is a little bit old school. And a lot of people, like said, especially younger people, don't like making phone calls. But with miles, you know, it helps.
1: Yeah, we also have, we also have Hookah, H-U-C-A, hang up call again, where you, if the first one doesn't seem, because I mean, agents are not necessarily highly try. I mean it, 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 For the obsessives, it even gets to the point where we know which time of day to call which country's call center, because we know we get the expert agents that are based here who who know how to do this kind of stuff. I mean, like Hod used to be a real problem. Now their agents in Serbia are really good, but it used to be you had to call in a way that you would get their Manchester agents because they knew how to book the partners, but the other countries didn't, or, you know, I mean, even setting aside miles, I mean, it's it, it's long been a strategy. Okay, you're in Chicago, there's a blizzard, you know, United says there's a three-hour hold time. Well, you just call the United number in Singapore, you know, whatever the Skype charge is, it's a few cents a minute or less. And it's not snowing in Singapore, I can guarantee you, <laughs> you know, and you can get an agent that can get the same system. So it is, it's, and I do different beginner talks about miles, exactly this things about who's partnering with who, what is this concept? You have Delta miles, you can't transfer them to Korean airlines, but you can use Delta to book a flight of Korean airlines and these things. It is, it's mind bending. It's, it's very complicated, but you know, if you focus, I've, I essentially know two programs, I know Delta very, very well, united pretty well, and that's gotten me to every country in the world. And there's there's only a few that like new, uh, like uh, um, Nauru, that it can get me part of the way, but eventually cash comes into play. So, uh, you know, knowing one or two really well can can do a tremendous amount for you. And there's there's good programs all over the world. And there's uh, with bank transfers. If if you have any of the major banks in your country that that transfer to multiple airlines, you could be surprised at, at what's available to you if you if you do have that interest and focus.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned a few, but I'm guessing some Pacific countries were, I'm just guessing they were the most difficult to get to, or the most expensive, or you'd have to use miles in a tricky way. Is that the case, or am I missing maybe some obvious ones that that maybe don't seem like they would be difficult to get to? Uh,
1: Yeah, the Pacific is is interesting in that you've got broadly uh, the Micronesian nations, which have very limited service, and then... um, you've got uh, you know, different regions based on language like French Polynesia is very well connected to uh, New Zealand, Australia, the US, France. It is not well connected to any of the neighboring countries and so you know are you going back through Auckland and so does a frequent flyer program allow you to write route you know from French Polynesia to Auckland to Fiji? Does, does it treat it as as one trip within a South Pacific region, or does the system break it up so you're paying essentially two tickets—one to get to Auckland, one to get back? So, so there is a little bit of complication there. It, it um, for a number of the Pacific Islands, Fiji Airways is is really become an excellent airline, and they have a number of partnerships around the world. So. Um, uh, most familiar with their U.S. partnerships uh, um, with um, uh, Alaska, American, but they've added partnerships with Cathay, British Airways, different ones, all, all different award chart values. Uh, but they they allow some some pretty creative routing. Uh, but it does often uh, um, make it a little more challenging. Uh, some of the technicalities of these idea of like published fares. So if Fiji Airways hasn't filed a cash fare. In the international ticketing systems between two islands, so that doesn't exist as a standalone uh, cash ticket. Uh, you you can assemble it as a cash ticket, but it's not it's not published that way in the parlance. So then the award tickets can get a little bit complicated, or needing to break them up, or uh, you know you're crossing the international date line, so just not booking the wrong <laughs> the wrong day. I mean it it uh, it it does of, of regions that's that that's a bit tough uh, to. To use, and and we'll see how things shake out. I mean, Virgin Australia has effectively ceased all international flying, and they used to hop around the region. Uh, so we'll see how things we'll see how things shake out. Um, but uh, it's it's fun. I mean, I, I see a lot of people share their South Pacific itineraries, and then people trying to figure out uh, does it work. You know, what what happens if this breaks? Is there a ba- the backup flight is is, is three days later you know can you can you fix it or not <laughs> That's a,
0: a bit of a roll of the dice yeah I'm watching this uh, series now um, long way up I don't know if you heard of Ewan McGregor's motorcycle trips this is the third one um, oh, Okay. And the first one I think in 2004 was what really kind of got me set on wanting to go to every country so he took a motorcycle ride with Charlie Borman as friend, and they went from London to New York around the world. Mm-hmm. So wow. through Russia, they did one from London to Cape Town, and now they're going up the Pan-American, Pan-American Highway, Ushuaia all the way up to Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. between Argentina and Chile, they have to cross the border like five times because the highway just kind of <laughs> zigzags between. <laughs> no, sure, <so> yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious to see the, what the different border crossings are like, and they get to like one place where the guy's just like, just stamping you know it's such a tiny place it's like um so yeah it's, it's kind of interesting just the logistical parts of those trips um
1: yeah if and certainly i mean the flying is one thing and sometimes it's 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 the preferred if if people do have time to take any kind of overland trip you know, whatever the means of transport it, it does you know air travel has been regularized to a great degree and and visa on arrivals you're most likely to encounter there the, the land borders all of that experience uh can be um uh you know, you know much m- much more rewarding much more interesting i mean crossing the borders back and forth i mean if you just if you take your your standard game of thrones dubrovnik tour but but start driving around and drive from Dubrovnik to uh, Sarajevo I mean you'll cross several borders a, a few more times than you expected to and you'll start to you'll start to get a sense of how complex the region and, and how uh, you know, some of the troubled history you know just just by physically crossing going to a place like Mostar and in that and and uh, you know getting a sense that that just the fly in fly out travel doesn't allow.
0: So the Across your entire journey, the last two countries were Syria and Yemen. Were those the last two? Yes. How did that come about? Because I can imagine when you're... Yemen now, I think, is a little different story. But especially with Syria, I think when you're planning that trip, it's got to be kind of awkward, both getting there, the trip, and then getting back and then making that plan. So what was that like? And when when did you go uh, specifically?
1: So for Yemen, I specifically went in April of 2019 to Socotra Island in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so this is part of Yemen, uh, but it's it's quite remote from the mainland. There there is no gun ownership amongst locals on the island. Um, there have been different forces that have come in and I'm my cell phone network the whole time it would say, welcome to Saudi Arabia, welcome to UAE. It never said welcome to Yemen. That was the only <laughs> welcome I never got. Uh, you know, there's been different governmental forces but it's been peaceful throughout this conflict. It was just cut off for several years. No, the Saudis controlled the airspace and they were not allowing uh, any, except for some very limited aid flights. Uh, and so this, it was uh, early in 2019 that, these flights started resuming uh, from Cairo to, say, in, in the mainland Yemen, onto to Socotra with the approval of all the authorities operated by Yemenia, and so I felt comfortable to take that on. And, and Socotra is a wonderful destination. I just helped uh, the Brat Guide Company. Um, they just they did a crowdfunding to publish the first guide, and it's it's some of the very best beaches in the world. The incredible dragons blood trees, bottle trees. It's often called the Galapagos of the of the Indian Ocean, and and Galapagos could be said in reverse. And it the history goes back to a mention in Herodotus. It's it, it's a fascinating place that is adopting ecotourism and you know it it could have five star beach resorts on on you know every corner of the island and it has none of that right now and so it's it is an incredible experience to to go and visit uh so that that was a patience and waiting and when it opened up uh i went and i know a number of tourists who have traveled in mainland yemen i i did not take that on i did not feel comfortable of the same i mean safety is is so relative but it so much of it was the well, nothing happened, so it 's safe and you know, what nothing happened means nothing happened and My own evaluation was it was beyond my risk tolerance and and still is uh, others uh, you know have their own interpretations so that uh, trip was in April. And then uh, my 40th birthday was approaching in September and I had no official goal, but y- you start hitting these round numbered ones and you can't avoid thinking about, have I done anything, <laughs> accomplished anything. And I was like, this is the one thing I could, <laughs> you know, maybe say I've, I've done on a specific deadline. And so I had, I'd been trying uh, different fixers. I've lost money with some fixers. Uh, of trying to get the visa, always trying to go in through official means, get an official visa with the the official government, uh, not some tourists had taken a, approach of going in through uh, unrecognized borders and unrecognized regimes, way way beyond any method. I mean one very sensible fixer I talked about uh, over time, he kept saying, you know, there's lots of good one-way options, but we don't have your round trip option yet. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and and being a U.S. passport holder that was additionally complicated because of the, uh, you know, the, the involvement of us in, in the situation. And I'd I'd almost given up. Uh, but then my Facebook group, um, every passport stamp, a a Swedish woman I had never met. And, um, she, uh, now works in, in uh, Afghanistan and the business development role. She's interested about the world. She's just suddenly did this post of dozens of fixers in, operating in Syria or claiming to, well, what nationalities, what pr- they serve, what prices, what have they actually achieved? I mean, this incredible research and I almost missed it. And a friend said, look at what she put together and try this one in particular. And so I gave one more try. This my birthday was coming beginning of September and July. And it was, you know, I, Certainly, I think Americans were were used to a lot of communication and a lot of updates, and a lot of the world doesn't work that way. And so I just had to be patient where it was like I I didn't hear anything for almost five weeks. And I was getting a little nervous, you know, but it was – they didn't ask for any money up front, anything. Uh, And then just a week and a half before my birthday, they said it's looking good, but it's the weekend – will know when they're back on Sunday, and I said, if, "If you know on Sunday, I will be on a flight, you know, Monday, and and uh, and so the I was one of the first Americans that, that the tourism minister signed off, signed my visa. I booked a walk up. Uh, it was a week before Labor Day, but uh, Air France miles uh, using Delta and Air France flights, thirty-four thousand miles to uh, for the next day. So in essence, just you know, like under 400 bucks, you know, for the next day one-way ticket from Seattle to uh, uh, to Paris to Beirut, and uh, you know, within within about 30 hours of getting my visa, I was in Damascus after. One checkpoint after another, just thinking. Now they're going to say no. Now they're going to say no. And you know, finally, the they said my guide said the very last checkpoint said this really is the last one. And I said, "Can you ask the guards if I can take a picture now? Is it allowed?" You know, very much following the rules. And so I got, you know, got the happy picture, getting in, and it um, it was an incredibly moving experience. It wasn't one where I was. Uh, dancing and celebrating it's it, it's not my style and in the country i mean there's there's it, it's certainly not hiding all the damage and, and quite the opposite it's it's visiting that and you know the 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 black and white perspective of who's bad and who's good when you're on the ground in a country and i have no expertise in the region i, I really i mean I, I i try to be current of events but i have no expertise on it but when you visit a place that has gone through this kind of conflict, every single person you meet has had some tragic story. And, and, you know, whatever their affiliation may be or not, when you meet them on a person-to-person level, you find, you know, that, you know, you're driving through a town, while this damage, well, my brother was killed here, this was our house, you know, the, these kind of things, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly shocking and humbling. And actually the, um, the most uh, moving moment and I, I didn't know really till the last day uh, where I the the fixer who had arranged I had met her briefly and then met her at, at the end and she, uh, she was talking about her background and uh, about the history a bit of, of the region in her life is that she's a, a Palestinian refugee and and this goes back to the 90s and the different conflict and Syria took in many Thousands of refugees from that conflict who have lived there ever since, uh, and to hear people, including herself, Tuckett, have Syria has prided itself on having welcomed these people, and actually feels a resentment that when Syrian refugees were uh, from this conflict were not, in their view, similarly welcomed uh, in in some of their neighboring countries. But um, you know, she she has a permanent residency in Syria, but she's a stateless person. And so can't travel anywhere. And she or she was celebrating that I've traveled everywhere. And uh, you know, and I said, I said, I don't even know what to say. And she said, Don't worry, I travel vicariously through you all. And uh, you know, these these kind of moments are just they're devastating. They bring you to tears. But this is this is what you know. It's it's not disaster tourism. I don't go to seek out battle zones or anything. But but having these kind of connections. And then a few weeks later, I was in. Uh, for homecoming, I visited my high school in Minneapolis, and and visited. They had a current Middle East uh, politics uh, class, and I was able to put her on live stream, you know, and have her tell her story to the high school students, you know, somebody I never would have met, and and so that experience was, you know, incredibly moving. You know, yeah, it, it, it's cliches about travel forming perspective and that, but but it but it is true. I mean, the growth and that you can have by by going to. Places and places that have been in stress, places with different experience, is is so powerful. If if you do have that open mind and you seek out experiences,
0: yeah, I think that's sort of the ultimate truth. You know, I, I just watched a documentary on what is truth and what you know why a lot of us can't agree on that anymore. And I think when when you meet people face to face, that that creates something that that's really undeniable. That this sort of connection that we all have because we're, you know, we're so similar, our motivations, and we can kind of put ourselves in other people's shoes and see, you know, why, you know, certain things are the way they are. So um, I think, yeah, it's a lovely story. Um, You know, when you were in Syria, so, you you know, you you hadn't met the fixer yet. Uh, You get to Beirut, uh, I guess you take, you go overland, I'm guessing to Damascus from there. Yeah, it's,
1: that's the main way. I mean, some limited flights have started to Damascus and Jordan's another possibility, but the, the most easy is is Beirut. Um, the um, Syrian cars are not allowed into Beirut Airport, so they have a Lebanese driver meet you. And it was a different driver than I was expecting. But fortunately, I had roaming and the WhatsApp came in and said, okay, this person's picking you up. And then outside the airport, they hand you into another car and and, and you're off towards the border. And it, it, the distance is very short. I mean, it, it crosses this mountain. And I've driven over the mountain before on a trip to Lebanon uh, to see some of the UNESCO sites on the other side. It's always traffic jammed because they haven't, you know, the capacity or, or have, you know, build a tunnel or a proper expressway. And it's, it's often covered by snow. Uh, but But otherwise, I mean, it would be more or less without traffic it'd be a 90-minute commute between two major world cities that in better times were you know very cosmopolitan and and i mean certainly in arriving in damascus you you, you see i mean it's it's such a diverse country and the, the people religions and the question i get to myself is it, it seems like this is the last place some horrible conflict would happen i mean and it was back to school shopping and you're seeing all different religions and and this i mean it it, it, it it, it only creates more questions about how something so tragic can can happen but uh but yeah that's that that's the mechanics and you know lebanon's happy to let you go <laughs> you know they don't care i mean there's a lot of people crossing the border and it's the main people who have issues are families and you know do kids have the right paper i mean the you know, visitors you have a proper visa you know and it's the visa by paper and um, you know, there's a huge duty-free shop on the damascus side it's a long border and you know the land in between, in terms of like I said different checkpoints and that, but you know there was it wasn't anything out of the ordinary except my incredible nervousness uh, about it. Uh, you know, in terms of any fighting, that's that's quite some distance away. I mean, it's not not in that region at all uh, for for some time, uh, and then you're there, and you know it was, it was near midnight because the, the the flight arrival is like eight nine p.m. and you know, and across from my little guest house is uh, you know, an ice cream shop with, you know, father buying his daughter ice cream and and uh, you know, speaking of pandemic related challenges, I mean some of these guest houses I stayed in, uh, you know, first guest since two thousand twelve. I mean, you know, hearing the story, the the famous guest house overlooking Crack de Chevalier, the, the Crusaders Castle. He talked about I mean he's he had just about finished renovating the damage done to one of the bedrooms, so he could have his first overnight guests, and he had opened up the the, the famous uh, garlic chicken of the region. He had f- opened up enough so so guests like me could have lunch in the restaurant and get a little income, and just him and his brother rebuilding one room. And I heard that story again and again of like the you know the the father and the uncle would move back to a destroyed house and build enough of a room so they could have shelter, and then try to build the next room so part of the family could come back. Yeah. Uh, these kind of things.
0: So, you know, I guess in terms of tourism or, or you know, I, I want to leave uh, the contact information for your fixer or just where, you know, people can get in touch in the show notes. But, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking it seems like, you know, Syria right now is a very high level of experience for a traveler and maybe a high risk threshold, right? This is not a trip that most people would take. I, I, am I correct, or is it much more normalized than what, what I sort of have in my mind?
1: Uh, I think they're both correct. Uh, you know, There there are active areas of fighting uh, in in the country, and that's, by definition, going to be a high level of risk. You know, that said, other parts, and, and the parts I was in, have no fighting and have had no fighting for, for some time. And, um, you know, there's checkpoints all over and every visitor has to have permits for each specific region and place they're going. And everything was very professional in that sense. Uh, You know, so it, I I was very nervous and concerned about it. You know, I, I took every precaution that I could think of, but I knew that I was biased by wanting this goal to have happen, and if this goal wasn't pushing me to maybe less quality judgment, I probably would have waited. And uh, you know, I feel in retrospect, the arrangements were such, and the situation in the country was enough that that travelers say, have a similar uh, you know experience level or comfort with travel I would you know, say on that basis that, yeah, it you know, it, it can be appropriate to visit, uh, but, um, uh, you know, for a lot, you know, there, there's a huge, wonderful world out there. You don't have to force something you don't feel comfortable about. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's incredibly hard to get accurate information about the safety of, of any country. I mean, right, it's, it's, when when I had a corporate job some years ago, where the travel and risk department was based in Miami, Florida, they would complain because they I would have to I could go wherever I wanted, you know, for my own personal. But they always wanted me just to give them an idea where I was in the world, and you know, I always joke with them. I'd say, "You never warn me when I'm coming to Miami, you know, for meetings, you know." <laughs> but if you if you just look at it from the news and all that, I mean, you could say like, "Ooh, this is the high risk place you're going," and and it's it, it's very hard. I mean, you ask, you know expatriates from a country and people who have left immigrants from a country and and uh you know they often left the country for a reason and they might be out of date and, you know you, you ask expats in a country you know what, what is their experience uh you know, what is the news reporting what is the local news reporting it it is very tough and you know it, I, I don't recommend anyone force a situation where you know they don't feel comfortable pakistan is one that has this reputation for lack of safety and there are some regions that I would say absolutely you know as a tourist you know you really should think twice and then the government may not even let you because of uh, their own assessment of concerns but you know a city like uh, um, Lahore I mean just incredible place and and I mean objectively it's I think it's probably as safe as as any major city right now Uh, but you have to get yourself to that that comfort level and assessment and uh you know be adventurous in the world but not taking risks where you feel you're putting your safety the adventure shouldn't be your safety uh yeah. you know um you know and all that said i, I i've done different talks for People starting out, international travel. I mean, things that people are concerned about, about language, for instance, that can always be solved. You know, language, money. There's apps. There's tools. There's people who speak language. You know, you, you can solve all of those practicalities, and, you, and and you know that well. I mean, the I, I give a guideline of the, like all the three Ds: don't be drunk, drugged, or debauched. And you know, so much of the world, whether it's in Syria or whether it's in Barcelona, if you know you're drunk in the middle of the night or drugged and you're, you're in a, a shady nightclub, you know, that's, that's very high risk. And I think, yeah, you know, that, that in driving, you know, the other, I mean, I love driving around countries, but driving is something where there's lots of accidents and, and so, you know, having a sense of, of what risks you're taking, what state of mind you're in, uh, you know, is, is really important. And I, you know, if I, if I wanted to party or use substances or, Alcohol or that, you know, doing it in my home country where I know what the legal system is. I, people are there to be able to help me. You know, I I know all those things. It may be less fun, uh, but it it makes a lot more sense uh, than you know going to a party place where the drinks are half the price, but but you could get into some some really deep stuff. You know, especially like me, I'm traveling solo, so I I mean I do not drink when I'm traveling. Uh, you know, the exceptions are something like a a business meeting where it's a totally different thing and it's, it's part of the culture and I'm, you know, to be respectful, I'll partake a little bit, but, um, you, know, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, very sensible about you know, what are the things that, that are a big risk.
0: Yeah. I, I, I like the way you put that as well, that, you know, don't, you don't need to force it. You know, everybody has a different comfort level and you should go. I, I think people, people always ask me, where should I go? And I say, where do you want to go? So there's always a response is, what is the place that you really want to go to? And it's usually a place that's within somebody's sort of just default comfort level, aside from all the other reasons that they want to visit. And I think I think that's, that's good. And to be patient, you know, some places may not be safe to visit now, but hopefully over time that will change. Um, but, but yeah, it's not, especially if you're traveling solo, it, you have to be so much more diligent you know, even just when you're at a bus station with your bags, for example, you know, you, you're you the only eyes and ears. And then, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that it it becomes more complicated. Um, but, yeah. yeah, if you're it, just it, smart. It, 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 the yeah. world
1: is, I mean, you know as well as I, I mean, the world's full of so many good, helpful people that, you know, a lot of things that I think people worry about won't come to pass. Uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, being very specific about, you know, Certain risks in that. You know, another guideline I have is, you know, I mean, two versions of it is: are, are the women and children out and about, or are the elderly folk out and about? I and mean, if you're in a given, if it's a market area and none of them are out and about, you know, that's that's a worrisome. You know, that's a sign that you know something's wrong. If they're comfortable and out and about in an area, you know, it's probably functioning well. You know, so. Getting a sense of you know, what what the locals feel comfortable with and that, and a read on a situation, and you know, being up at dawn instead of midnight—you know—can change the risk profile of the place tremendously.
0: Yeah, I bring I brought this up on the podcast multiple times. But I was recently in Lahore earlier this year, right mm-hmm. right before the pandemic, really. And I just arrived. It was night. I was going to this sort of opium festival that they have it's like a sufi opium festival in the outskirts of the city mm. and I, you know i'd just gotten there so i didn't know what it was like i would arrived from islamabad which is totally different and i was a little nervous because people told me it's really dangerous like if you take your camera out you're gonna get you know robbed instantly and mm-hmm. i was like okay and i show up and there's a temple there and there's just you know, kids playing outside with their moms. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. all right, I think yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> you know, just instant sort of, Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it, it, it had to happen. I was like, yeah. uh, the, the connection has been really good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was just saying, you know, I showed up to this temple and there's just children and they're playing outside with their moms. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. instant sort of, okay. I think this is not as, you know, dangerous as people have told me. And, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, and it, what a, what a fantastic city Lahore is! I mean, oh, incredible. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was one. It was my I think it was my favorite in, in Pakistan, especially after Islamabad. And you know, Islamabad was a little bit, you know, it wasn't what I expected. Yeah, it's
1: this, it's this strange, <laughs> spread out grid where it's not really walkable. It's like this leafy suburb of a city, and that it. it uh, I love I love walking a place, and that's. Yeah, that's not really. <laughs> Islamabad is like is like uh, walking around Le Défense in Paris.
0: <laughs> yeah, a lot of walking by the very close to the cars on the side of the street. You know, not a lot of sidewalks. Um, so I don't want to keep you too long, but I did have one last question. Uh, what was it like when you? I guess from Syria, you flew back the same route. I'm guessing to
1: go uh, a little yeah it was the flights were so sold out i went back through cyprus and spent about eight hours in the the cyprus airport lounge because i was so exhausted and <laughs> and didn't want to get a hotel so.
0: <laughs> so you return back to the u.s when they ask you where where have you been how did that conversation go
1: <laughs> i have global entry and that one uh they did not ask i mean they they have all their flight reporting so they would they would know my my itinerary in that um it was actually a totally it was a few a month or two before it was a totally different trip that i was coming actually from canada <laughs> and uh, i was in uh, i went to this odd place i said i grew up in minnesota there's a place i didn't even know about growing up called the northwest angle which is a little bit of Minnesota that is connected by water, but by land you have to go through Canada. And I said, I, I've never been, I've got to visit. And so I, I visited that, and then so I flew from a Canadian airport over to uh, uh, another Canadian airport, Vancouver, where they have what's called US preclearance, and you do US arrival there. And the preclearance spots are generally much, have the reputation for being much much tougher agents and much more inquisitive. and. And I actually, I really screwed this up because uh, um, they uh, pulled me to secondary, which is uh, you know, the extra questioning, and they started asking me questions about when I'd been to Egypt, and and I sound and I was like, oh, it's two thousand fourteen or thirteen, and I did this and that, and they 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 had the expression that they just weren't believing it, and and. It was a while into it that I and they were asking me, and I finally figured out because when I went to Yemen, I had to change terminals in Cairo Airport, so I had this the same day stamp in, stamp out in Egypt that I'd totally forgotten about because to me I was like I wasn't in Egypt, you know, it, mm-hmm. it just didn't even occur to me. Cause I was just changing terminals, but to them it was this ultra. So they didn't care that I had been to Yemen. They, had, they the stamp was right there. They had no questions about it, <laughs> but it was like, this guy, he's not even telling the, you know, about this Egypt trip. He's telling us some story about a vacation, you know, five years ago. <laughs> and so it, it, it did. It was like, and then I went to the, the, the next guy and they looked and they said, okay, okay. You know, we've looked at all your profile, you know, and you've always, for global entry, part of the renewal process is you check every country and you know, and, and and I've always been a hundred percent truthful. I, you know, never of course you the last thing you want to do in any of these situations is lie. And so I've always and so they you know, check the records and they said, Okay, now we understand and you're doing this and we see online that you're going to every country in the world and okay, you know, have a good day. And uh, you know, was was still able to get my connection. But um, yeah, coming back from uh Coming back from this one, it's it uh, you know they didn't ask beyond the, the regular declaration, so I don't know what questions they had. But uh, <laughs> at that point, you know, I, I think that's uh, part of being part of that program. As I said, you're giving so much information about your your work, your addresses, your travel history. You know, I've always. Uh, provided it I've always cooperated and in, in all of that I even even if I have a tea bag I say I've got food to declare because <laughs> I don't want to get fined or have anything you know that seems inappropriate and that's you know t- t- to my experience maybe I've been fortunate but it's you know it's always followed the 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 letter and spirit of the law in terms of in terms of uh, my interactions and you know, around the world I've seldom had any issues with with any real immigration uh, you know at um, one time uh, republic of congo they had just started allowing tourist visas without needing a letter of invitation and so the embassy in washington gave me a visa but the customs had never seen somebody turn up with the visa but no loi in like two hours they didn't want to let me in and, and uh, we been, it was like sunday morning and so there's no way we can get anybody at the embassy to confirm it and you know, know, I'm thinking, are they trying to get a bribe? Are they this and that? And it was just, it was truly, I mean, they just hadn't gotten the memo that this was allowed. And so after, you know, finally the supervisor, supervisor came out and said, yeah, everything's in order. You're free to go. And, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. uh, Maybe maybe close with, uh, you know, dashing expectations and all that uh, arriving in Lagos, Nigeria, where uh, there's so many stories of all the corruption and, and all of that. And I, you know, I can't speak to anybody else's experience. My one experience uh, was arriving and everything was so smooth and I was so tense and like, you know, something's going to happen here in the shakedown. Just, you know, there's always that, that last step right before the, the doors slide open, yeah. you know, where you're thinking like this is where something's going to happen. And sure enough, some plainclothes guy comes out, passport, please. And <laughs> And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> th- th- this is where the stereotype is true. And he flipped through it, and I've, I've never had this happen before. He he extended his hand, he shook my hand, and he said, "Thank you so much for visiting my country. Welcome." And,
0: wow.
1: and that was it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Here you not, were uh,
0: waiting to get scammed or something, or yeah, and I, <laughs> you know,
1: but it and uh, you know, I, I realized there's reasons why those stereotypes exist, but it was also my fault for just assuming the absolute worst and it turned out to be the, you know, the, the most gracious, you know, setting aside the steel drums in some of the Caribbean countries they play for arrivals, you know, <laughs> you know, it was the most gracious, uh, warm welcome I've, I've had. And that was Nigeria. <laughs>
0: nice. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. I, I, I've took, taken a lot of your time. I, I find it fascinating. I, I have to, I'm going to invite you back. We, we definitely should do a, a, another episode at some point, uh, because, I mean, you probably have a million travel stories and you've accomplished this goal, which I've sort of loosely set for myself. So, and I think, you know, on my list, uh, mostly difficult countries, sort of a greater portion of difficult to reach and get visa countries than the easier ones. I've sort Mm -hmm. of knocked the easy ones off the list. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd love to to talk more about that. But I will uh, link to your site, to the Facebook group, um, also, I'll get the details to your Syrian fixer if you like. I can put those That's in the right. show notes. Um, and I want to just thank you for your time. It's been a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, and thank you. I've been, been reading you for years
1: and, and love, uh, you know, so many travel bloggers are about displaying themselves. And, and, and instead, you you build useful tech tools for people I and mean, you, you do things of true value and utility to travelers in addition to telling your stories. And I, and, and I love that, that idea of contributing and, and, and facilitating others' travels. So, uh, love, love your tech tools, love, uh, love your site, love your tech reviews. Even, I'm not an Apple person, but I'm even interested when you're talking about Apple. So you're. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. I, I i uh, that means i'm'm I'm, I'm on focus with the mission goal which is travel smarter so i really I, I do appreciate that and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon and thank you everybody for listening and uh, have a nice day Thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the podcast Thank you Stefan for being a guest I'm gonna link to his website to the Facebook group also to his video series where he interviews. A lot of different travelers and bloggers, and I have been a part of that series as well. And uh, I don't do a lot of interviews uh, for, you know, a, for a couple of reasons. But uh, his, when he reached out, his email to me was so it was just so well written that i was like okay this is going to be an interesting interview so i was a little bit nervous before this episode of the podcast to be honest because he's such a good interviewer but hopefully this uh, conversational style worked out well and you enjoyed this episode thank you very much for listening and i hope you have a great rest of your day and i'll talk to you in the next episode